Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 150. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we talk to Dr. Ted Banning about sampling strategies in archaeology and how we can make them better. Let's get to it. All right. Welcome to the show, everyone. And welcome, Paul. How are you doing? I think I'm doing okay. I had a little bit of uh, tech trouble <laughs> getting in here, and that's pretty much par for the course right now. As we're going hybrid at school, we found something very interesting, which is that... Uh, our firewall, we beefed up our, our internet connection to the school and our firewall, mm-hmm. though it can handle it in terms of the uh, the traffic, just the, the, the raw bandwidth, it can't handle hundreds and hundreds of Zoom calls concurrently. And so we've <laughs> been fighting with these spikes that, that just bring the whole network to a screeching halt and uh, trying right. to find new ways of routing. It's been, it's been a headache. Uh, so, so the troubles I had you know, 15 minutes ago to get on this call par for the course for today. How have you been? <laughs> I'm doing great. Yeah. As everybody knows, we're traveling around the country. We are currently in Fort Lauderdale, mm-hmm. Florida. I'm sweating from humidity right now because we turn off the air conditioners when we record. So that's a stark contrast to the rest of the country. If you're listening to this in real time, we're recording on February 25th. So this comes out a bit, a bit later than that sometime in March. But it's crazy. And we're surrounded by huge lizards, geckos or something, whatever they're called. Some from you know a foot long to four feet long. They're crazy. They're all over the trees. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I do want to call out real quick too, before we introduce our guest, if you're listening to the podcast of this, which you probably are, we are of course still an audio podcast, but our platform that we usually record on now has a pretty dedicated video component. So if you're interested in watching us, you can check the show notes and click over to the link to our YouTube channel where you'll have a video. There's nothing flashy over there. You're not going to see movies or anything. It's just us talking. So if you're interested in that, that's where we're going to be. <laughs> and uh, our smiling I, mugs. I would say... I know, right? I would say the YouTube channel link out loud, but I actually don't know what it is. It's probably slash ArcPodNet, but who knows? It'll be in the links, so no worries. We'll send you straight to the video. And to be honest, we probably will even just link it in the in the show notes here. So uh, you wouldn't see that on your podcasting device if you're on mobile, but if you click in and go to the page, then you'll see it right there on the show. So, But let's get straight to our guest today. And our guest today is Dr. Edward Banning, and he wrote an article called Sampled to Death, the Rise and Fall of Probability Sampling in Archaeology that came out in the latest edition of American Antiquity here in 2021. I'm not sure I even want to talk to him but I'm, because I'm probably going to find out that the thousands and thousands of shovel tests I dug were totally useless. So, <laughs> Ted, welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. It's nice to be here. All right. I'm glad to have you. Yeah, absolutely. So what led to the writing of this article? Well, it's kind of a funny thing because I hadn't really planned on writing an article like this, but I was asked to write a different paper for uh, an edited volume on archaeological spatial analysis 
Um, volume mm-hmm. edited by Mark Gillings, Pariah Guzeler, and Gary Locke. And they asked me to write a chapter on spatial sampling. And they had very strict guidelines about what they wanted the articles to include. And among those things, they wanted wanted me to include a section on best practices using real examples from the literature. And I thought, yeah, fine, that seems like it should be easy enough to do. And then when I went to the literature and tried to find best practices, I had a really hard time trying to find any. (laughs) And it suddenly dawned on me that modern archaeologists either don't use sampling very much or just don't talk, or if they do use sampling or probability sampling, they don't really talk about it. They don't say how they did it, what kind of sample it was. Uh, And it started to really kind of concerned me that this was an aspect of archaeological uh, practice that seemed to be quite problematic. So I decided to write this article about it to see if I could kind of begin a discussion on, uh, you know, where we need to improve our practice when it comes to sampling. And I, I should make it clear that I'm not arguing that people should always be using probability sampling, but there are some kinds of archaeological research where probability sampling really is called for. And I didn't really see signs that people were doing that, or at least they weren't talking about what they were doing. Hmm. Well, let's get our terminology down straight away here. When you say sampling, we're not necessarily talking about taking soil samples or something like that. We're talking about sampling and digging in different places, right? So why don't you define those terms for us to, to help focus this conversation? Yeah, in fact, that that's one of the other problems I saw in the liter- literature. I ended up doing a, quite a big literature review when I wrote that article. And mm-hmm. one of the things I noticed is the, ter- the word sample, we use it in lots of different ways. And in some ways, that's kind of understandable. But I think it also leads to quite a bit of uh, confusion. So, you know, so we talk about radiocarbon samples and soil samples and, you know, botanical samples of various kinds or archaeometric samples. Mm-hmm. And when we t- use the term in those contexts, we're, re- we're usually not talking about sampling in the statistical sense at all. And what I was right. mm-hmm. focusing on mainly in that article was the more statistical aspects of uh, sampling. What sampling means in the statistical context is looking at a subset of some bigger thing that they call a statistician calls a population in order to make inferences about that population without having to examine the whole population. So for example, you might want to know what's the proportion of red painted pottery at site X, and you're not going to excavate the entirety of site X to figure that out. You're going to do a small excavation at site X, and and that's going to give you a sample that you will use to make inferences about what's going on at, at site X. So that would be an example of sampling, but it wouldn't necessarily be a probability sample. So a probability sample is uh, a mm-hmm. special case of a sample where you use statistical theory to try to ensure as best you can that the sample you take is representative of the whole population so that it can, you know, the, the characteristics of your sample mm. are going to be similar enough to the characteristics of the population that you can make reasonable inferences about that population. Right. I thought it was very interesting the way that you were uh distinguishing the way that people use sample. I immediately, after reading your article, went to my dissertation and typed in you know, S-A-M-P-L <laughs> to find how many times I used the wording because I didn't do any kind of statistical sampling in my, uh, in my dissertation. It was, um, it was some field reconnaissance. But you make the distinction, as you're just saying, between sampling as a, as a rigorous, statistically validatable, I guess, uh, way of collecting data, of 
ensuring that it, it's representative of a larger population. But we also, in the field, we use sample a lot. I took a sample of the soil. We took a sample of this uh, of the carbon. Um, I used sample in my own example, my dissertation. I said, this sample of whatever, and it wasn't sampling in any sense like what you're using it as. It would have probably been better served by the word example. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. In many of those cases, I think it's better to use words like example or specimen Mm -hmm. or in chemistry, they would actually use words like aliquot. If you take like in archaeometry, for example, sometimes you'll drill a little hole in an artifact and take out some material for X-ray fluorescence analysis or neutron activation analysis, whatever. Mm -hmm. A chemist would call that an Mm -hmm. aliquot, whereas we always call it a sample. And right. sometimes it can be a sample in statistical right. sense where you might randomly pick where the places where you're going to take it from or whatever. But most of the time, it has nothing to do with probability theory at all when we take these so-called samples in archaeology. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. And in fact, you know, let's get it. Let's be serious. I've, you know, I'm, I've used sa- the word sample in these ways myself. You know, I'm being a bit hypocritical here. I'm sure if I went back to my dissertation, I would see lots <laughs> of cases where I use the, t- the term sample in these uh, kind of sloppy <laughs> ways. But, uh, but, but the point is it, it creates a certain amount of confusion. And uh, I think it might be a good idea yes. for us to use terms like sample a little bit more precisely. But, but I think the more important issue is not so much the terminological one, although that has some importance. But, but I think it, the more important issue is uh, describing our samples more adequately. Like what sometimes people in an article even say, we did a random sample of X, Y, and Z, but they don't tell you exactly what they did. You know, how did they do it? Was it a spatial sample? Was it a cluster mm-hmm. sample? They don't tell you what the sample size was or necessarily... And I think it is not unreasonable to expect people in their methods section of their paper to say exactly what they did. You know, I used uh, some kind of website that generates random numbers to pick random X and Y coordinates on the site and randomly selected 15 two meter by two meter areas or whatever, which constituted a cluster sample. And then I did such and such kind of analysis. And generally speaking, I found Mm -hmm. when I reviewed all these articles in several major journals that people were not doing that. A few did, but shockingly mm. few. In fact, most, most of the articles that referred to using a sample appear likely to have been using what a statistician would call a convenience sample. And a convenience sample is just whatever mm. I've mm. got, essentially. You know, whatever comes to hand, you don't need to have any kind of statistical methodology in order to come up with a convenience sa- sample. You just take the first you know, 50 artifacts that you get can get your hands on or whatever. And that isn't necessarily a bad sample, but there's certainly a lot of risks that you'll end up with poor characterization of the population if you use convenient samples without thinking about it pretty carefully. For some purposes, a convenient sample can be fine. And for other purposes, it can be quite disastrous. You know, so for example, some convenient samples will be based on a small excavation in a site or somebody arbitrarily picks some spot on a site to excavate. And depending on where they excavate on the site, they might end up in the middle of a flint napping area, in which case all of their inferences are going to be about, you know, wow, how much flint napping was going on at the site. Or if they excavated somewhere else, it could be all about butchering or something like that. And hardly any evidence for flint napping. So mm-hmm. if you're unlucky, a convenient sample can give you a very poor idea of what's going on in the population. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I would imagine too that with a lot of CRM projects, which is what the bulk of my experience is with in the last decade or a little more, 
that it's really difficult to come up with an accurate probability sample, right? Because you mentioned a probability sample would have the, or sampling strategy would have the the characteristics of the site at, at large, right? But a lot of times we don't know what the site at large looks like. And, and we're going off the, the heavy hits for shovel tests or pedestrian reconnaissance survey or whatever the case may be. And we're saying, hey, there was a ton of stuff over there. Let's drop a test unit in because we found a whole bunch of stuff when we were doing the, uh, doing the shovel test bits. And that's often what determines where we dig and why we dig. What, right uh, that, or wrong. <laughs> that, 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 is, that is true. And CRM archaeology does have its own challenges, many of which have to do with the fact that you don't get to decide as the CRM archaeologist, or at least you quite often don't get to decide what the parameters of your project will be. Your, some developer says, I'm right. going to be building a shopping mall or whatever, and you have to do the archaeology in this part of the map where I'm going to build a shopping mall. And it might not make a whole lot of sense in terms of an archaeological population that you want to sample, and you're kind of stuck mm-hmm. with it. At the same time, one of the things I found when I when I did the literature review was it was a bit ironic that, uh, to some degree, CRM archaeologists have preserved the idea of doing probability sampling better than research archaeologists have done. You know, it's, I, I'm overgeneralizing, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I found more instances sure. where people would do something like a stratified random sample in CRM reports than I did in research articles, which I thought was kind of interesting. Hmm. Um, even though, you know, arguably that kind of approach wouldn't necessarily be a good approach in CRM because it's at least certain kinds of CRM, your goal is to find as many significant sites as possible or something like that, not to make generalizations about a population necessarily. And having said that, it was still true that a lot of CRM reports did use some kind of probability sampling to the extent that they could, uh, whereas I wasn't finding that very much in the research publications of the last 20 years. Uh, I could see that being some sort of a, to, to some companies, uh, an academic rationalization over a, around a way to save money, basically, rather than doing a lot more stuff. You're, you're using fancy probability sampling to basically dig less and justify it with <laughs> the science. I'm not saying that's necessarily true, but that, that could I be one factor it, in it. I think in some instances that could be a factor. But incidentally, something you mentioned yeah. uh, when you were talking a minute ago, you, you talked about how... Uh, sometimes you'll you'll want to excavate someplace because there was more artifacts found there, or you had shovel tests, some positive shovel tests, mm-hmm. or something. So that's where you want to focus your uh, f- further analysis. And what a lot of people don't realize, there's actually a type of sampling that's designed for that situation. Uh, it's called adaptive sampling. It's relatively new. It's only been around for about 25 mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it is the type of sampling you do. If you have something like shovel tests and you want to sample more intensively wherever you have a positive shovel test. So there is actually a formal way to do that. And some jurisdictions I found, like some of the CRM guidelines for certain states and provinces actually recommend a type of adaptive sampling, although they don't usually call it that. But what they don't mention and most archaeologists don't realize is that if you use Mm -hmm. adaptive sampling, you have to use different statistics to analyze the data that come from that. Because what you're doing is adaptive sampling builds in a bias because <laughs> you're basically excavating where there's higher densities of artifacts. So obviously, if you use that to estimate average artifact density, it's going to be wrong. It's going to be biased, right? Upwards, right? So you have to have um, use the right, right formulas for calculating things like mean and standard deviation and standard error uh, when you're using adaptive sampling. It's not hard to do that. 
Uh, and uh, there's a there's a very good book by Clive Orton that was published in uh, 2000 called Sampling in Archaeology. And he has an appendix at the back where he has all these formulas for this is the formula you should use in such and such a situation. And one of those sections of that appendix um, is on adaptive sampling. So he tells you exactly what formulas you should be using if you use adaptive sampling. So in CRM, that would be a very good thing to be nice. using sometimes, but uh, you, need, you need to use the right formulas. Hmm. Right. That makes sense. I have a question, actually. Uh, we've been, you, you talk in your article about spatial versus non-spatial sampling. Uh, and it seems to me that it basically cuts across between things like field archaeologists on the one hand, including survey, uh, doing spatial sampling and uh, specialists, faunal analysts, for example, uh, doing non-spatial sampling. But ultimately with archaeological data, almost everything comes back to a spatial component, right? So those potsherds that you're analyzing came from a particular locus on a, in a particular trench on a particular site. So it has a spatial component. Is that distinction between spatial and non-spatial really meaningful in our field or is that um, you know, you know, it, it is heuristic? It is meaningful, but you are correct that almost all the samples that archaeologists deal with uh, at the end of the day are spatial samples. Like generally speaking, the only time, again, I'm overgeneralizing, but almost the only time that we use non-spatial samples in archaeology is when we're sampling stuff that's already been excavated. So it's sitting on the shelves of a museum or something. And there might be some site that was excavated in the 1930s and they excavated huge amounts of material. So there's hundreds of thousands of artifacts and uh, we don't have time to analyze all of them. So we might randomly sample what is sitting on the museum shelves, for example. But most of the time, even the paleoethnobotanists and the faunal analysts and whatnot are whether they recognize it or not, they're actually dealing with spatial samples. In fact, they're dealing with a special kind of spatial sample that's called a cluster sample. And that's another thing that was, it's kind of one of my pet peeves, really. And it's one, one of the things that came out in that article I, I wrote <laughs> is that a lot of archaeologists basically ignore the fact that they're dealing with cluster samples. Because again, oh, well, first I should explain what a cluster sample is. I, I, I mentioned the concept of a population. So a, a sample is a subset of a population. And most of the time, the population we're interested in is something like the population of artifacts or the population of plant remains, or the population of animal bones, or something like that. But we don't actually excavate the population of animal bones, or plant remains, or potsherds, or lithics. Instead, we excavate or and survey, whether we're doing excavation or survey, we tend to excavate or survey spatial areas, right? So we might have two meter by two meter squares that we excavate, or transect strips that are you know five meters wide and 100 meters long that we survey or something like that. And those are actually the elements in our population. So our population is not artifacts or plant remains. It's a population of spaces. Within those spaces, there may be artifacts, potsherds, you know, like potsherds and lithics, or there could be seeds or animal bones or human bones or something else. So we end up with kind of two kinds of population. The population we actually sampled is the spatial one. And the population we're really interested in is the non-spatial one. Whenever that happens, and it happens a lot in archaeology, hmm. we are doing we are almost always doing cluster sampling. So if we want to do something like estimate the the mean length of projectile points from such and such a site that came from a cluster sample, to do that in an unbiased way, and especially to come up with uh, accurate measures of standard devi deviation and standard error especially standard error, 
again, you have to use the right formula for that. And most of the time, archaeologists ignore that they use a cluster sample and they just use the standard simple equation for a, a basic simple random sample, which it, this is not. And you end up with an incorrect measure of standard error on your on your estimates. So cluster sampling is pretty ubiquitous in archaeology. And I think we need to make more recognition of that. And we should be teaching our students how to calculate means and proportions and standard errors on cluster samples. It's not hard, but unfortunately, most of the standard software mm-hmm. that we use doesn't do it automatically. We have to, like I, if you want to do it in an Excel spreadsheet or something, you have to kind of trick it to do it. Talking about math is a, is a great place to take a break. <laughs> a bunch of archaeologists, so... <laughs> let's let's do that and then we'll come back on the other side and talk about uh I, I like some of these sections you've got in here called like the rise of uh archaeological probability sampling and then uh and then the fall of probability sampling so let's talk about some of those concepts and some of the rest of the stuff from the paper on the other side of the break back in a minute chris webster here for the archaeology podcast network we strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world one way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once we do that through the use of zencaster that's z-e-n-c-a-s-t-r zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest just send them a link to click on and that's it zencaster does the rest they even do automatic transcriptions Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 150. And... Just to remind you guys, if you want to see the video portion of this, where you get to see all my mistakes because I'm not editing it, the audio podcast does not hear this, but uh, check out our show notes and our YouTube channel for the Archaeology Podcast Network. But in the meantime, we're going to go back to Dr. Ted Banning here, and we're going to talk about some other things in the article that you wrote. And again, the article is linked in the show notes, and it's open. Uh, no, it's it's not open. It's American Antiquity. That's right. So, no, it actually is. No, it is open. Actually open. It's open Did they access. open it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Great, great. Wonderful. I, I always think of American Antiquity as not open, but Cambridge University Press has been doing some things and, and opening some of them. So we'll definitely link to that in the show notes if you want to follow along, because there's going to be a lot of stuff that we don't have time to talk about. We've talked about probability sampling, and there's a whole section, uh, like a page and a half, where you talk about the rise of probability sampling, which we've kind of talked about what that is, but then you go right into the fall of probability sampling. <laughs> so we're, explain that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I was curious to see if I could figure out why it, why it was 
that probability sampling after being extremely popular during the 1970s, I know people like Lewis Binford really promoted it and it really took off. And, mm -hmm. and for a while in the 1970s and even to some extent in the early 80s, you know, there was an idea among archaeologists that no archaeological, at least no serious archaeological research could take place without probability sampling, which was actually kind of a silly idea but because there's lots of kinds of archaeological archaeological <laughs> research that does not require probability sampling but anyway it became kind of the the sine qua non of uh, archaeology in the 70s and then in the 80s it suddenly mm -hmm. dropped off and i was curious as to why this might be the case and especially after 1990 it dropped off and i i you know i demonstrated this mm -hmm. by looking simply counting the numbers of articles that talk about sampling in uh, some of the major journals over several decades I explored several possibilities for this. One was a blistering critique uh, by a statistician named Bonnie Hole. She published an article in 1980 that criticized uh, the way archaeologists had been doing probability sampling, but she didn't actually criticize probability sampling itself. She was really criticizing really bad examples of archaeological sampling, which is a different matter entirely. So, I, And I don't mm -hmm. think that had any impact on the drop-off mm -hmm. of sampling. What I think is more important is the post-processual critique by people like Ian Hodder and especially Shanks and Tilly. Mm -hmm. And then also there was a very influential book that was published in 1990 called The Archaeology of Regions, The Case for Full Coverage Survey. So mm -hmm. even though it was, only, it was only addressing the issue of regional survey in archaeology, not sampling in general, it really, I think, went a long way to convincing people that sampling was not just a waste of time, but actually kind of evil. And uh, that people shouldn't be doing it, and they should be doing this stuff called full coverage survey. Ironically, though, mm -hmm. wow. full coverage survey is really a kind of sampling, because nobody who does full coverage survey right. is actually finding 100% of the archaeological sites. You know, if they're really lucky, they might find 80 or 90% of the really big sites. That they're only finding, in many cases, a, quite a small sample of the small unobtrusive sites. But it, nonetheless, I think it had a big impact on people's uh, thinking about sampling. So mm. by the late 1990s, pretty mm. much nobody thought that sampling was a good idea, at least in the case of regional survey. And nobody really talked about it much in other aspects of archaeology either, with the exception of some papers that focused on just having an adequate sample size for an archaeobotanical report or something like that. Yeah, it's it really mm -hmm. collapsed quite rapidly in the 1990s. I was wondering as I was reading it, uh, I couldn't help but get the sense, and you didn't say this explicitly, but it, it felt like it was an undercurrent of of the collapse of statistical sampling in archaeology was that, especially post-1990, it's kind of a, an innumeracy among archaeologists. Do you think that that's an accurate characterization? Well, it, that's, that's a good point, because as, as somebody who teaches archaeology students a lot, including uh, one of the courses I teach is a lab course where... I expect students mm -hmm. to do at least certain kinds of statistical stuff, including sampling. Uh, one of their labs that they have to do is a mm -hmm. sampling lab. And it is a problem that not all, but most of the students who go into archaeology do not have much of a math background. And, you know, we can all agree that mm -hmm. math isn't, in, unless you're a mathematician, math isn't necessarily very exciting stuff. But... Uh, but sometimes there's a serious problem with enumeracy that archaeology students don't necessarily know how to do even really basic mathematical functions. So when we expect them to do something like calculate standard errors on a cluster sample, 
they find it really difficult. So I have to walk, mm-hmm. walk them through that process very slowly to try to get them to learn how to do that. And I hope that they take that away with them at the end of the course, but you know, who knows? Uh, some, some archaeology students might decide, wow, thank God I got that over with. Now I'll never have to think about it ever again. <laughs> and they go off and do their archaeology mm-hmm. without any pro- formal sampling ever again. But I think this is a problem. And one of the things I did discuss in the article was that I, I, in addition to uh, reviewing uh, literature on archaeology, I also reviewed some highly ranked archaeology and anthropology programs, undergraduate programs, to see whether or not archaeology students were required to take statistics, for example. And it turns out that mm-hmm. you know, a significant number of them do require some statistics background. But, but nowhere near all do. It, yeah. I forget the exact number. It's in the article. But something like 33% of the programs I reviewed or something have at least some kind of st- statistics requirement. Mm-hmm. But it's not a very substantial statistics requirement. You know, nobody's requiring archaeology students to become very adept yeah. at any kind of mathematics. And I don't really expect that they, that they would. But mm-hmm. it would be nice if there was a little bit more nuanced training in yep. the kind of statistics that archaeologists would find useful. In my experience, I think most of the time when archaeology students do get some statistics training, it's usually pretty pro forma and it's not really tailored to archaeological problems very well. You know, for example, I also reviewed textbooks on archaeology and a significant Mm -hmm. number of them have at least a couple of pages on sampling. But all they do is, is talk about sampling in a spatial context and all they do is tell the difference between random systematic stratified and sometimes stratified systematic stratified unaligned survey and so they tell students what those things are but they don't tell them when you should use this Mm -hmm. one instead of that one or why would you use this one or how do you actually apply it or if it's a stratified sample how you how do you decide what the strata should be how how do you evaluate whether the stratification was useful or not Um, those kinds of issues we don't discuss with our students by and large and I think that's a shame because teaching them kind of cookbook recipes for yeah. how to do sampling without teaching them how to apply the samples in the real world is not really accomplishing anything. Well, I think that's interesting. The cookbook application of mathematical solutions problems. You, you, this 1990 date is interesting to me because this is a tech podcast and Chris and I are both heavy computer users. And that's right about the time that computers ended up on everybody's desk. Do you think that some of this could be attributed to the ease then with which one could do statistical mathematics with something like Excel or I guess 1990, probably Lotus 1, 2, 3 because of the computers? Do you think that black box aspect of it made, for lack of a better word, made people a little lazy about how they were thinking about their, uh, their sampling and how they were thinking about their stats? That's an interesting idea. I actually hadn't considered that when I wrote that article. I'm going to have to go back and think about that. But I think there are two things here. Because on one, on the one hand, I think you might be right that the availability of software has allowed people to do a lot of really bad statistics. Frankly, you know, I, I know some archaeologists who will take a data set and they'll just dump it into some statistics program like SPSS or whatever. And they'll just run every statistics, mm-hmm. every statistic they can think of, to see if anything comes out with a with a significant, you know, probability of less than 0.001 or something like that. And that's a really bad approach because first of all, they're mm-hmm. violating the assumptions of at least half of those tests when they gave the data. 
Second, secondly, uh, to do, to do, you know, by definition, any random set of data, uh, of if you just submit, you know, t- twenty random sets of data to some statistical analysis, one of the twenty is going to be significant at the at the ninety five percent confidence interval, just by definition, right? Because that's why it's the 95% confidence interval. That means one time in 20, you're going to get a, a, a significant result just by chance. So to do that kind of approach is really not very good. Yeah. Uh, but, the, but on the other hand, what, mm-hmm. what people haven't picked up on is the positive side of all of this software. Because the computers have enabled us, if we learn how to do it properly to get a lot more out of our data than we once would have done, including how to sample it properly. So for example, one of the sites I use a lot, there's a website called random.org. And whenever I, I want to get random numbers, mm-hmm. that's where I go. You know, in the old days, you'd use a random number table or something like that, which is, you know, kind of a pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. But random.org actually gives you genuine random numbers. They're not just pseudo random numbers or something like that. Uh, they actually use uh, meteorological data mm-hmm. or something like that to generate the seeds for the random number generator mm-hmm. that they use. And so it does get, mm-hmm. generate wow. any kinds of random numbers you want. So you can say, I want a random number between five and 65 or between one and a hundred or whatever the case may be. And it'll do that for you. I find it very mm-hmm. helpful. And that's just one example. You know, there's tons of statistical resources and websites and whatnot uh, that will help you do things like sample design, but by and large, archaeologists don't use them. They use things like Excel a lot. And unfortunately, Excel, for all of the merits it does have, uh, it also has some weaknesses, including the fact that, uh, at least last time I checked, it doesn't accommodate things like cluster sampling. And since archaeologists use cluster samples so much, that's a bit unfortunate. So if I use an Excel spreadsheet for a cluster sample, I have to actually do some kind of scripting in order to make it calculate the standard errors correctly. If I just use this, the regular formulas in Excel, I'm going to get incorrect values for my standard errors because it, is, it assumes that right, I have right. a simple random sample, which I don't have. I have a cluster sample that's very different. You know, I'm thinking too, you were mentioning students and and hoping that they take some of this away from <laughs> from your classes <laughs> and, and, and apply it uh, in an academic or even a CRM sense. How do you combat as a professor passion and intuition in archaeology because you, you see a lot of people out there that are just like man i just feel like there's something over there you know what i mean and even there's a lot of people talking about it in fact i even recorded an episode on one of my other shows about the netflix show the dig about the sudden who excavation over mm-hmm. in the uk and it even starts with the archaeologist or the excavator saying i think we should dig here because this this, and this and the landowner saying i think we should dig here because i convene with spirits and i feel like there's something there and it turns out she was right that doesn't do us a lot of good but turns out she was right how how do you fight that when like you said archaeologists we don't do math right we don't we don't really study that kind of stuff but you're you're trying to tell them that yeah if you do this stuff right and you fill these models with the right kind of data they're going to give you the right answers and you have to trust these models i mean that's got to be a difficult sell to to most people that are in an archaeology program yeah well you're right that it's a difficult sell to convince archaeology students that math is important <laughs> one of the points i try to make with my students is that I'm not saying that things like intuition are of no value. Uh, and in fact, one kind of sampling sure. that I actually haven't talked about, that I haven't talked about in this podcast is uh, purposive sampling. That's another kind of sampling. It's kind of in between convenience sampling and probability sampling. Purposive sampling is when you use your own judgment 
to decide how to sample things. And in some kinds of situations, mm. that's actually the best kind of sample to use. Uh, I find it's very good choice in cases where you have a very specific hypothesis you want to test, for example. So, you know, you've got, I don't, I'm not sure if we're going to think of an example off the top of my head very quickly, but, you know, for example, if you are excavating a site and you find uh, traces of a wall or a row of post holes or something, and you think you found part of a such and such kind of building, you can you perhaps get the idea that, well, if this is the kind of building I think it is, there should be another row of post holes around four or five meters to the east of here. Well, then the obvious thing to do is sample four or five meters to the east of here to see if you find more post holes, right? That, that just makes good sense. It's good common sense. Mm -hmm. uh, a random sample of the space is not going to accomplish that for you anywhere near as efficiently. So purpose of sampling is a great way to go in some kinds of circumstances. But the other thing is that there are, if you're willing to go, to go the direction of mathematical approaches, there are also Bayesian statistical approaches. And Bayesianists uh, mm. put a lot of emphasis on what they call prior information. So even your gut instincts can constitute prior information. And you actually build that into your math mathematical model, and, but it's in a much more formal way than just saying, I think we should go dig over here. It actually allows you to do things like figure out uh, what's the probability that I'll find such and such here rather than there and so on, um, using good sound mathematics, yeah. but it also accommodates people's professional judgment and intuition and all that kind of thing. Now, for example, just to use an example that's not archaeological, in uh, marine search and rescue, they use Bayesian approaches mm -hmm. to decide where to send the searchers to find a plane that went down in the Atlantic Ocean or whatever. And they use prior mm -hmm. information sure. on things like currents and wind direction and wh what was the location of the plane the last time that the pilot radioed in. And those all become parts of the prior information. Right. But they also use professional judgment. Like they might stick a bunch of admirals in a room. Uh, and ask their opinion. Like, where do you, you know, each one of you bet on where you think the plane went down. And they use that yeah. information as part of their prior information for their model. And by doing this, they actually find down ships and whatnot, uh, ships and airplanes a lot quicker most of the time. Now, admittedly, there have been some uh, failures of that too. Famous one, uh, mm -hmm. Malaysian flight, I forget what the flight number was now, which they searched for right. for months and never found it. <laughs> oh, right. Uh, but Right. You know, who yeah. knows why they weren't successful in that particular instance. But most of the time, they're, they're actually quite successful. And archaeologists can use those kinds of methods as well, uh, which go beyond just sampling. It's not necessarily sampling at all. But the mathematical approaches in archaeology do have a lot of potential that is mostly unrealized, partly because archaeologists don't tend to get much background in math. The, the searching for a lost plane or ship is a good example because that really rings true for me because I'm a pilot and I'm also in the Civil Air Patrol in Reno, Nevada. And Nevada is vast expanses of basically nothing, right? And they, they do start with initial information. What was the last radio call, like you said? Were they caught on radar? Were they seen from the ground? Did anybody you know hear them? Uh, yeah. what's their flight path? Did they follow a flight plan? Things like that. And once you search those grids and you don't find them, then we start talking to pilots and saying, if you were flying this route and if there was a storm coming or if you had an engine failure or something like that, what would you do? And they start, they start bringing intuition when the, the logical stuff starts to not produce results. So that, that definitely pans out. Yeah, that's exactly right. In, a, in essence, Bayesian analysis allows you to 
incorporate professional judgment and even intuition into a mathematical yeah. model. Hmm. There you go. All right. Well, I think that's a good takeaway. But in just the last couple of minutes here, this podcast, or at least this section, what are some other takeaways you'd like people to take away from this article? And we'll link to it so people can read the whole thing. But what are some of your big, your big takeaways regarding sampling? I suppose one big takeaway is to make sure people realize that I'm not I'm not trying to argue that people should always be using probability sampling because, you know, mm -hmm. I myself, you know, I do a lot of archaeological survey in my own research and I don't, uh, most of the time I actually don't use probability sampling for that. I use some version of uh, purpose of sampling that is informed by a predictive model, for example. So nowadays we have GIS, you can use right. predictive modeling in order to inform your survey search. Because I'm doing a kind of survey where I'm trying to search mm -hmm. for particular kinds of sites. I'm not trying to find a random sample of sites or try to make generalizations about some population of you know whatever sites ever used to be in this region. I'm usually trying, in my own case, I'm usually trying to find Neolithic sites. And a random sample would be a really bad way to try to find those. So I'm not trying to say that probability sampling is the way you should always go. But I do think it's important for archaeologists to realize when probability sampling is useful and when it's not. And if you are going to use it, how to use it as effectively as possible. And a lot of the times that's going to mean making very informed choices about a stratified cluster sample is most of the, is most of the time going to be the best solution for us. But it's going to vary depending on your situation and whether it's a CRM problem or a research uh, you know, academic research problem or whatever, um, those can sometimes be the same kind of problem and other times they can be quite different. So you have to customize your sample design to the situation. I like that. While we wrap up this discussion today, I did want to ask you though, you end the article with a series of proposals, varying degrees of detail about how you could reintroduce probability sampling into the curriculum for student archaeologists. Do you actually have hope that that's going to happen? <laughs> You know, I do have some hope that it's going to happen. It's difficult, in part because even the people who instruct students today, you know, let's face it, most of them have not had a lot of training in, uh, in things like probability mm. sampling or statistics. Some have. Some have been trained on it way better than I have. But I think they're a minority. Mm. So it's, I think it's a bit of an uphill battle. But I think the, the important takeaway in terms of student training, I think, is to get away from these kind of cookie cutter approaches where you just teach the students, this is a random sample. This is a stratified sample. This is a, some other kind of sample. Yeah. And then they learn it for a week, they write their tests and then they forget about it afterwards. I think it's much more useful to teach them things like how do you decide which kind of sample to use in a particular situation? Or if you're going to use a stratified sample, how do you, how do you decide how to stratify it effectively? Because that, I think, is not being done as a general rule. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, just one final question for you, Dr. Banning. Is Sampled to Death in the article title an homage to Dug to Death, the book by Adrian Pretzelis? You know, actually, actually, it's not. Actually, it's not. I actually am aware of that book, but I, I hadn't thought of it when I, when I was writing the title. <laughs> It's the first thing that popped into my mind when I saw that. <laughs> I was probably actually thinking about how many articles I had to read in uh, several, several archaeological journals and <laughs> compiled my data for that one. And I actually ended up, um, because it was, I, uh, I, I did read quite a few articles beyond what I sampled, but at the end of the day, I ended up doing a, stratified, a, a disproportionate stratified <laughs> random cluster sample 
of the articles in several journals. <laughs> uh, and after I finished that process, I really felt that I was sampled to death. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> nice. That that sampling strategy sounds like me trying to order a coffee at Starbucks. It's, uh, <laughs> it's just a mouthful. <laughs> All right, sir. Well, thank you very much. This has been great. Everybody check out the show notes and and read this article. It's a really great article, whether you're an archaeologist or not, whether you're an academic or a CRM, there's some really good points in here to keep in mind. So definitely check this out. And like you said, it's American Antiquity, but it is open access. So go check it out before they close it down, because who knows when they're going to do that, um, if they do at all. I don't know if it'll be open, open access forever, but thank you for coming on. Everybody else stick around. We are going to come back with a segment three and Paul and I are going to wrap up and we're going to talk about my new virtual office that I'm using as I'm traveling in my RV around the country. So again, before we go, Dr. Banning, thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And thank you for inviting me, Paul and Chris. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for being here. It's been great. All right. So we're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a minute with segment three. Stay tuned. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. All right. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 150. And we just got done interviewing Dr. Ted Banning. But I got to say, because there might be some changes on this segment that you might notice, through the magic of podcasting and the internet, uh, Paul and I didn't actually have a chance to record segment three right away. So we're recording it like a week and a half or two later. So if you notice some slight differences, then that's why my background never changes because, well, I don't even know if I was outside or inside when we recorded this, but uh, I'm in Georgia now and I was in Florida before. So there you go. And I, and I think Paul lost some facial hair. So we're all good. Yeah. But Paul, I think some of my key takeaways for that were really around the, uh, and I mentioned this in, in one of the segments too, the thousands and thousands of shovel tests I have dug on really basically indeterminate, like for no reason, state mandated grid systems. You know what I mean? And it feels like a massive waste of time. And the I mean, there are people doing that right now. Like every day, mm -hmm. people are out there digging on 30 meter intervals because that's what the state says you should dig at is 30 meter mm -hmm. intervals with, you know, basically little to no reason behind that. Yeah. When I think of that, uh, it reminds me of the fact that like, you know, if you want your doctor's records, it yeah. goes in faxes because the laws that were drawn up about privacy were written for the uh, for the technology of the time in the eighties, <laughs> which was fax yeah. machines, right? And so now yeah. you know, trying to get an email of your medical records is a total pain. That's oops, yeah. We're not going to get the explicit rating for that, are we? No. <laughs> it's a total pita. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> because you can't do it just through your regular email. You've got to do it through some weird emailing system that texts mm-hmm. you a link or something. Or you could just send it with a fax if you still had a fax machine somewhere. Right. So that problem that you're talking about of, of dealing with these regulations, these guidelines of to how you have to sample are probably written, enshrined into law or into whatever regulations mm-hmm. a long time ago. And I thought that the discussion with Dr. Banning was really interesting because he was challenging us, you and me directly, us as a field, to really re-examine how we sample, what we think sampling actually is. You know, yeah. and I, I let off uh, talking about uh, how I had to go back and look at my dissertation to see how I use <laughs> the word sample or sampling, uh, which I've used very mm-hmm. infrequently, but the few places I used it probably weren't really accurate. Mm-hmm. And so he, he gave us a bunch of different kinds of, uh, of strategies about sampling. Uh, and I, I found it a really interesting discussion because I went afterwards and I was looking to see what stats for archaeologist books I've got in my bookshelf. I looked back and I realized I only had one stats class as a, as a grad student. I mean, it was specifically for archaeologists, but yeah. it's nearly 30 years ago now. I don't remember anything right. from it. You know, um, right. I definitely need to refresh my knowledge. And I suppose that a lot of people here probably do too. So, um, yeah, it was, it was exciting to me to, to, to be challenged like that uh, in a way that makes me want to mm-hmm. dig in more. I don't know dig if in. you had a slightly nice. different effect. Oh, yo, no pun intended. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> of the things you're not allowed to say in an archaeology podcast, dig in is at least in yep. the top five. I'm just kidding. Um, oh, hi. No, I... Uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, coming from a CRM perspective, pretty much everywhere you go, there are regulations to what qualifies as a site, what qualifies as an isolate, how, what's your mm-hmm. interval that you should be doing your pedestrian survey on, or what's your interval that you should be shovel testing on. And I don't mm-hmm. think there's an inherent problem with having a methodology and a standard, because if you don't, people will just not do it, right? They'll just do whatever they want. Uh, right. I'm thinking of Florida. When I worked in Florida back in... I think it was 2007 or eight or something like that. Doing shovel tests down there, they were 50 by 50 centimeter square shovel tests as opposed to 30 centimeter round shovel tests that a lot of states have. But a lot of the East Coast states for some reason have, I wouldn't say a lot, but some have 50 by 50 centimeter square shovel tests. But there was a thing down here with low, medium, and high probability. And I think low was a 50 meter interval, medium was 30, and high was either 15 or 20 meter. And that was based largely on elevation, right? Because Florida has very few elevation changes. And when you're working down in, say, where we were near the Lake Okeechobee area, I mean, your mean elevation is somewhere around three to five feet above sea level. Mm -hmm. And if you've got even one little spot that's a little bit higher, it's a much higher probability area, theoretically, because that was high ground. It's high ground, you know, a thousand years ago, and it's high ground now. Now, there are some problems with that because the ground out here is sand. I don't care where you're at in Florida, it's sand, right? It's sand pretty much everywhere. And one hurricane that comes and runs across the landscape could totally transform what the landscape looks like. So high ground now was certainly not high ground, uh, even maybe even 100 years ago in a certain area, right? Depends on how close to the coast you are. But there are a lot of factors there. If you got a lot of well-developed vegetation on this high spot of ground, that can help hold it together and that Mm -hmm. can help keep it there. But my point is, The models, if there are any that are predicting this sort of strategy, if those aren't constantly fed information, they're not going to be accurate, 
right? We need to constantly feed models information in order for them to give us more accurate predictions. And the more information you feed it, you know, they're very hungry things. The more information you feed it, the more accurate what it's telling you is is going to be. And that's it. But I just have a feeling that a lot of this stuff was done intuitively back in the day and there weren't actually any models or maybe there was a model to start out with, but it certainly hasn't mm-hmm. been maintained and it certainly hasn't been fed regularly and is uh, completely malnourished. So there you go. I just, yeah. and, and that's what we're basing all of our field work on. Right. Nice metaphor. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I appreciate the discussion we had with Dr. Banning and, and I think that was really good and, and very timely as people start going into uh, uh, field work for those of us that do field work on the show or that listen to the show. I think it's something to think about, right? Something to think about while you're, you're getting ready to go do your strategies out there. So, all right, well, let's uh, transition then. I have only one thing that I wanted to mention. We haven't really had an app of the day segment in a while, but I'll tell you what, I got something I got to mention that is really been transforming the way that I do work. And let me back up a minute and say, you know, as longtime listeners of this show know, I've been living in our uh, in, in a 36 foot Class A motorhome for since June of 2020. My wife and I put our house up for rent, so somebody's renting it now. And we moved into this motorhome just not because we had to, but because we wanted to. We, we love traveling around the country. And even in a pandemic, in fact, almost especially in a pandemic, because you can still stay socially isolated in your home, but your home can move. And I feel like it's kept our peace of mind a little bit better because we can be in different locations, but still just be with each other and be you know safe and isolated like anybody would if they're going from their home. It's just our home has wheels. So... And an engine. That's important because a lot of people live in homes with wheels that don't go anywhere. But ours has an engine and can go lots of places. But one of the things I had to sacrifice, you know, for the first couple of months, I had my my 27-inch iMac um, computer with my 27-inch Thunderbolt display sitting up on the dash of our RV over here. Uh, and when we were when we were moving or underway, I, I laid them back on the bed. And it was just a kind of a real pain to set that up, tear it down, make sure I'm not going to smash them into the walls, make sure they don't, you know, fall off the dash. I mean, it was pretty secure up there. But also that big window got really hot sometimes and would just Mm -hmm. radiate heat onto my computers. And then I'd have to have the shades down and then it was just get really hot up there. And it was just, you know, it was too much. Um, And they're real huge power sinks too. And we were on like a 30 amp system versus a 50 amp uh, at some parks. Um, I would actually have power issues on those computers if the air conditioners kicked on while I had them on. They could shut off on me. So I ended up getting rid of them. And all I had was this laptop that I'm talking to you guys on. Well, I've been looking at displays again. And the one I was looking at was a 40 inch curved display because it was one display, but it was still a display. Mm -hmm. It would fit nicely in that spot up there, but I still had the same old problems of having to move that thing around and then heating issues and stuff like that. So I started looking around and what I ended up with was the Oculus Quest 2. Now, if you are listening to the audio version of this podcast, I strongly recommend that you switch over to the YouTube version of this podcast because I'm showing it on screen here if you've never seen one. So this uh, for the video uh, watchers is the Oculus Quest 2. It comes with two controllers that look like this, although they've got really good hand tracking. So in a lot of cases, you don't even need the controllers. You can just minority report it and move things around and do stuff with your hands, which is kind of cool. But I didn't get this for any games. And there's a couple that I've downloaded just for fun. But I got this for an app that came out last summer called Immersed VR. And we'll leave a link to this in the show notes, but it's immersedvr.com. 
again, they're brand new and they've had a lot of recent developments. They specifically coded because they are so new, basically for the Oculus line of products. I think the Oculus and the Oculus Quest 2, the Oculus Quest and the Quest 2 are the ones they work with and maybe even the Rift, but it's not displayed on their website anymore. But what they allow you to do is, and there's even a free version that works really well. I actually paid for it because I like five displays and to get five displays and some other stuff, I needed this. But it basically links wirelessly with your computer on the same network and allows you to put a, a display of any size in front of you and, and many, many different resolutions. So if you want a really high resolution, that's great. If you want a lower one for you know lower latency, then you can, you can do that. And then you can create up to five additional displays and you can configure those right inside your computer arranging them like you would any normal displays. And you can also drag them around visually in front of you, which mimics the display arrangement on the computer. You can use your hands as a mouse. You can use the controllers as a mouse. It's got keyboard mapping. So if I'm sitting here in front of my laptop, I map my keyboard to the virtual keyboard internally because a lot of times it just helps being able to see your keyboard. You know, even if you're a good mm-hmm. typist and you know where the F and J keys are because of the little raised uh, you know, lines on there, it helps being able to see your keyboard. So you can see your physical hands in the virtual environment and you can see them go onto a physical keyboard or a virtual keyboard, which mimics your, your physical one. And I'll tell you what, it is just phenomenal working in that space, editing podcasts, editing video, working with clients where I need to have multiple windows open because I'm looking at the notes I'm taking about them, the notes that I have from the last meeting, their environment up on one screen, some other stuff up on another screen, and then the Zoom call on a completely different screen. And it's transformed my workspace. And this was the monitors I was looking at were like six, $700. And this was $400 cause I got the, or maybe it was five. Cause I did get the, um, to 256 gigabyte version versus the 64 gigabyte to have more onboard storage in retrospect. I don't think I needed it, but I wasn't sure. Cause I never had one before. <laughs> I just looked at them online and hit the pricing and saw the two models. I said, Oh, Chris got the uh, higher one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was such a massive difference in, in size of an amount yeah. of memory for not that mm-hmm. much of an increase in price. And I'm like, I have no idea how much how much space these things need, right? Like I literally mm-hmm. have no concept of it. So I may as well get the bigger one because it's still cheaper than a monitor and it's great. So I just wanted to mention that. Um, again, we'll put the links in the show notes. But Paul, have you ever thought of VR or anything as a solution like this or have much experience with VR? I certainly don't have a whole lot of of experience with VR. I have thought about something like this, but not seriously. I think it's just because I've seen representations of things like this. So it's interesting that, you know, that this kind of snow crash world mm-hmm. uh, is catching up to us or we're catching up to it, that, that you can actually go into these spaces. Uh, you already said, um, what was a minority report? You know, you can go into yeah. these spaces and manipulate virtual representations of physical objects in and around you in order to, to actually accomplish a, a task that isn't playing a game you mm-hmm. know, or isn't yeah. just, you know, having some trippy kaleidoscope looking thing going, wow, this is really <laughs> cool, but actually to do some work. Yeah, that, that's that's pretty cool. <laughs> I'm definitely uh, on board with this being an interesting tech. Well, in this app in particular, they really focus on collaboration really hard because they've got a mm. few. You can have your virtual environment be anything from a static image if you if you just want to you know cut down on your latency. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. you've got internet issues or something like that, so you can really kind of reduce that down and just focus on your screens. But if you've got the internet for it, you can be in like 
a spaceship, for example, sitting in the front of the spaceship and traveling over the planet Earth that you can you can actually look around and uh, you and see, you know, out the side and down. It's ridiculous. Right. Sometimes sometimes I found myself just like staring out the window, for lack of a better way to say it. And mm-hmm. it was just uh, it's, it's just really neat. And then they have some public environments like cafe type environments where other people that come in there, you, you get seated basically randomly in there and you see the person's avatar. You don't see their screens, but you see their virtual hands moving around that are field mapped using the, the Oculus sensors on the outside. Mm-hmm. And if your microphone's turned on, you guys can sit there and just have a chat, just like you were sitting in a coffee shop or something like that, or you were sitting somewhere random and you just strike up a conversation with a with a stranger. And then the level that I purchased, I think the elite level, which is like, I don't know, like $14 a month, gets me the features I want. But I also did that because... I have a friend who just got a job at the place where I'm working. He's also into VR. He's been into PlayStation VR for a long time. And mm-hmm. after a few weeks here, he just started this last week. So in a little bit here, hopefully he's going to pick up a Quest 2 and he's going to come in on my account in Immersed VR and we'll be able to like legitimately collaborate in a VR space, a private room that we can set up and you know throw up a private whiteboard and you know draw out things because we do that all the time when I'm working with clients and I'm going to be one of the people training him uh, in the software that we're implementing and being able to collaborate in that kind of space is going to be transformative. I think it's going to be really great. Have you interacted with any other real person in this environment yet? Or will this be your yeah. first experiment with that? Well, twice. I went into one of those public rooms a couple times and, mm-hmm. you know, one time it was just people just, they had their heads down working. I don't even know why they were in the public room and I never turned my microphone on either. So there's that, but I was just waiting to see if people were having conversations and I didn't want to bug anybody if they weren't. Mm-hmm. Another time I went, it was a completely different experience. One guy came in and he, un- he unmuted immediately. Cause you can see that they're muted or not on their thing. Mm-hmm. He unmuted immediately and was like, was like, Hey, can you hear me? And I was like, yeah, I can hear you. Pretty cool. I'm just, just doing some work here. And he's like, this is a pretty cool app. And I was like, yeah, it's pretty cool. And then he, sh- he shut off his microphone and we just basically both went to work. And then another woman popped in and you could hear her saying, I think people can hear us. And you heard somebody else in the background, is your microphone on? And then they figured out where they were and they were doing to shut that down pretty quickly. <laughs> so, I mean, most of the time when I go in there, I'm, I'm really doing serious work. So I haven't gone into mm-hmm. the public rooms that often. And, and really what I'm looking for is my colleague to, to pick up a quest too and, and jump in here. And so we can do some real work. We'll probably be using it almost every single day to do that. That's the other thing is it's not as uncomfortable as you might think. And I don't have the uh, additional comfort strap that you can get with this that makes mm-hmm. it a little more comfortable, but I have a longer cord because this comes with a pretty short uh, USB-C charging cord. I bought like the 16 foot long one so I can basically sit essentially wherever I want. I don't have to be in front of my computer. Mm-hmm. And the second day I had this, I think I had it on for about probably 10 hours total that day. I mean, I, obviously I got up and took some breaks, but my working time was about 10 hours that day and I had it on the entire time and I noticed zero fatigue on it. So, cool. yeah. Well, I definitely cool. see, I mean, since we've gotten more or less comfortable with this whole Zoom world now, yeah, I, I could definitely see how collaboration working with somebody would uh, would be improved by that. Yeah. But you said you got it specifically to have more screen real estate. What what do those screens look like? What do those virtual display monitors, they look like real monitors? Yeah, they look like your computer screen. They don't they don't have any edges on them. They're they're edge to edge, right? Mm-hmm. So they don't they don't have some sort of, you know, skeuomorphic, uh, you know, computer monitor looking design, but 
if you have just one, it's typically right in front of you and you can make it go forward, backward. Uh, you can enlarge it. You can change the resolution. So, you know, your your content can be smaller or bigger within that screen, but you can also physically change the size of it. Like you're mm-hmm. getting closer to it around it. And then you can curve them as well. And yeah. you can have up to five and you can have all five in random directions. You can even have vertical orientation on some of those. Um, often I'll have a vertical one that's off to the left. That's got Slack and teams and my Timular account. Cause I don't need those as often. So they just kind of sit there on a high res vertical monitor off to my left. And I, I'm going to physically have to look over to the left to see it too. And then if you, mm-hmm. it, it's got five, um, three across and then two on top, it's got five kind of placeholders. If you drop your monitors into one of those placeholders, like if all five were in there, you could curve the entire thing and sort of wrap it around you in any sort of angle that you wanted, right? Whether it's, I have to look all the way to the right to see the monitor, or it's just slightly curved in front of me. So mm-hmm. the thing I really like about it is it's good for your neck, right? Because when I first started using it, I had my monitors like up here, like they were up in the sky, right? But I realized, what am I doing? I can just sit here and be comfortable and have them down here and just mm-hmm. like, not where my computer screen would be, but lower than my computer screen, because that's where I naturally want to just kind of sit when I'm when I'm looking at that stuff. So, right. Like you're reading um, a book or something. Exactly. Exactly. Except it's all five computer displays. <laughs> Back so, to the computer yeah. displays. I mean, th- that sounds like you're, you've laid out a virtual layout. That's not unlike what I've got. I mean, I actually work between here in the country, apartment in yeah. the city and three different buildings, depending where I'm at, at the school, depending mm-hmm. which day of the week it is. I, I, and I have some variant of the same layout I've got over here. I've got my laptop and I've, yep got um you know right now it's got my messages and it's got uh, discord open right in front of me i've got my uh, my main monitor so the laptop is an m1 macbook air i can't remember the exact resolution mm-hmm. off of it this one here is a 1080p monitor nothing not great resolution but it's fine 24 inches that's got my browser on it if i'm doing any writing if i'm doing any anything it's mm-hmm. happening directly in front of me but then i also have via sidecar i've got a iPad mini that sits just under that monitor. And so if I need to get something out of the way, I just drag it down to that monitor. So sometimes I'll have Zoom meetings up here so I can more or less make eye contact with people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll move the whole Zoom meeting down to the iPad. Anyhow, that's my setup. It sounds like you reproduce something similar that works for you with these virtual things. But I'm just, I would have to take a look at it because I I would just be afraid that uh, that the resolution in this virtual world wouldn't be as good as what I've got even with the worst of the three here, which is this 1080p monitor. You are possibly right. It really depends on your configuration and how you're using it. I have been trying to set stuff up like I'm at a drive-in movie theater because that's what it feels like, right? And it's really hard Mm. to take yourself out of that headspace and restructure these things. So you get the right... Because there's probably... There's there's three pages of resolutions you can choose from uh, on each one of those monitors and anything from like 3860 or whatever the heck that is all the way down to, you know, like 600 by 400 or something. I mean, it's it's crazy. So it, you just got to find the right combination. And mm-hmm. uh, I think I'm still trying to dial it in. If if uh, all goes to plan, you'll be able to try this in about uh, a month or so when I'm in cool. your area. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> there you go. Well, let's wrap this up. It's late. We got to get going. I'm glad we were able to, to wrap up this podcast. If you've got any thoughts on sampling strategies, VR, whatever the case may be, contact us. Contact information is on the website in the show notes at arcpodnet.com forward slash Archaeotech, any episode. But if you want to talk about this one, forward slash 150. If you want to become a member and support us, please check out arcpodnet.com forward slash members. It's just $7.99 a month. You get a lot of little extras with more coming down the line always. And uh, at the very least, you're supporting us and keeping this whole crazy train going. So <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work, but we appreciate that support. We really do. It's, uh, it's, right. it's so nice to have know those people back us and then also when they do come and interact with us online on the slack wherever it feels like we're doing something good yeah indeed all right well thanks everybody and thanks paul Uh, thanks chris take care Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.